0: Hey, everybody. It's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey, man, you guys to take a seat. You doing good this morning? You're looking good this morning. Well, I had the chance this week to spend some time with over 5,000 other church planting leaders from across the country, talking about how we can continue to advance the mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost and desperate world. And I'm super excited to tell you guys more about that. But this morning, I'm extra excited because we have a special guest with us. My good friend Josh Goodman is here. Josh is an incredibly gifted pastor, leader, communicator, thinker. He's been doing ministry in the Des Moines area for over 20 years, and I just, I could not be more pumped to have him here to continue our Image of the Invisible series. So would you guys put your hands together and give Josh Goodman a warm revision welcome today?
1: All right, good morning. Uh, A couple things before we get into the meat of our message. First of all, I'm just incredibly blessed to be here this morning. So thankful to Mike for the invitation to come uh, and fill in for him. Uh, I've been uh, really, very blessed by his friendship over the past four-plus years. Uh, We've had many, many lunches, breakfasts, uh, talking about serious things, many text exchanges, talking about our deep existential frustrations with the Hawkeyes uh, football team, during the fall basketball team, presently uh, but we just and also the Bears, and we share every team, uh, which isn't a good thing uh, because misery does love company in this case. But incredibly excited to be here. If uh, you know this is your church, you are very very blessed to have Mike as your pastor. Not just because uh, he is a gifted communicator, uh, or because he has really a flawless beard um, that I'm very envious of. But because of his heart, I can't tell you how many times in the past four years that we've sat across a table from each other discussing various issues regarding ministry or the state of Christianity across the globe. And I've been able to share some stories with him, either from things that I knew firsthand or that friends were experiencing all over the world. Most of these stories were stories of uh, you know radical healings or of multiple, many people coming to the gospel or the transformation of different communities through. Uh, you know, the message of Jesus Christ, and there's not been a single time where I've shared a story with Mike uh, that he hasn't gotten tears in his eyes, and I'll tell you that's something that's not common. Uh, I don't like saying that necessarily, but it isn't, and so if this is your church, uh, yeah, stay here and listen to what Mike has to say because he has an incredible heart uh, for ministry and for the gospel of Jesus. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Mike and I also uh, are related so my wife's grandmother and Mike's grandmother were sisters. Uh, and so the way that I figure it, that makes us basically brothers, uh, as close as I can tell. And so, uh, yeah, we have that, that family uh, relation. So that's the first thing, just blessed to be here. The second thing I want to acknowledge before I dive into this message uh, that most of you probably showed up here this morning and with some and are here right now with some level of disappointment. Why? Number one, you chose not to go away for spring break. And that created some disappointment naturally. Then, yesterday happened. And you're like, why? Why did we not go away for spring break? And then, on top of all that, you've lost an hour of sleep. And if you have young children, I remember these days, it's not pleasant. Uh, I'm almost 45, it takes me a full week to adjust. Uh, To this. So you showed up here, an hour less of sleep. All that happens. Then you show up to church and Mike's not preaching. And so I acknowledge that disappointment. But I am truly excited to be here and I hope uh, that you are encouraged and challenged and stirred up and drawn out by what I have to share this morning as I continue on uh, in this series in Colossians that you guys are going through called The Image of the Invisible. So I want to read the text that we're going to be using for this morning. I'm going to read through it, then we're going to put it aside for a while, and we'll bring it back around near the end. So let's go ahead and look at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading this morning from the New International Version, and I believe that'll be on the screen for you as well. This is Paul writing to the church in and He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Keep that in the back of your head. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the summer just before my 16th birthday, I was really looking forward to two things. Number one, getting my license, like every 16-year-old was back then when I was in high school. And number two, hopefully having my own car. Now, I had not done anything even remotely responsible, like save any money at all for a car from my jobs. I had spent every single cent that I had. Uh, but I was still hoping against hope in many ways that come my 16th birthday, I would get my very own car. And I say I was hoping against hope because I grew up in a single-parent household where we did not have a lot of money, and there was no reason at all for me to think that I would be able to get a car, but yet still, I pestered my mom Uh, as teenagers tend to do, about getting me a car. And I was hoping, but she had not mentioned anything to me about it. There was no promise. There were no promises. There were not even any possibilities. She was very tight-lipped on this idea. And I was just hoping that it would magically show up. So come my 16th birthday, I go to the DOT and I get my license. And then when I get home, my mom tells me, hey, I have a surprise for you. And she shows me and gives me my first car. Now, I went to a school where most everybody was wealthy and most every kid at 16 got cars and a lot of them got brand new cars or they got cars that had been their parents' cars that were three, four years old. So they're driving around in, you know, still new-ish model, right? Like BMWs, Lexus, some Mercedes, some nicer Toyotas, all this different kind of stuff. I had a friend who got a brand new black sports car like for his 16th birthday. So I didn't expect that. I just wanted something. And what I got was mind-blowing. It was amazing. It was a 1976 Chevy Nova. Now look, I was born in 1978, okay? And I was 16. So if you do the math, this was not even a relatively new car. 1976 Chevy Nova. It was a forest green color. This is the closest picture I could find. It was a much darker green color, but other than that, you are looking at the car that I got when I was 16. So as soon as I got this car, I found out, I still don't know to this day how my mom did it. I know she paid $500 for it, which you're like, oh, that was a long time ago. That was still not a lot of money for a car, even that long ago, for the record. But she somehow cobbled together $500 and got me this car. And I was beyond pumped. So I set to doing what 16-year-olds who grow up in the era that I grew up, which was the grunge era, I set to doing to that car what all my friends who were into grunge and who were into the sort of like hippie movement set about doing, which was kind of a hippie version of Pimp My Ride before Pimp My Ride existed, if you remember that show on MTV, so I went right to the mall, and I went to this hippie store called Conscious Cotton, and I bought a whole bunch of stuff. I bought an incense burner and some incense. Why? Yeah, to light in the car, to make the car smell good. Don't do anybody. I have a son who's almost 15. He's not going to do that. I got a whole bunch of those yellow hanging trees for the you know rearview mirror, and I put like four of them. I don't know why. Extra vanilla flavor with the incense. I bought a whole bunch of stickers. I bought a Jimi Hendrix sticker. I bought a Smashing Pumpkin sticker. I bought an Nirvana sticker. I bought a Led Zeppelin sticker. I bought all these stickers, and I put them at various places on the bumper and also on the paint portion of the car. I don't know why, but I'm a perfectionist. I'm getting, no, I'm not actually getting over it. I'm still a perfectionist. But back then, I was making sure the stickers were dead center. They had to be lined up. I, one of my pet peeves, some stickers are crooked on cars. So, they're, they're dead center. But one time I made a little bit of a mistake. So I'm like, oh, I'll redo it. Pull out All the paint came with it. So that shows you the state this car was in. But I did all that. And across the back windshield, a huge sticker, no fear. Anybody remember the no fear like clothing brand? It was a surf company that eventually got into other sports. And they had these sort of motivational quote t-shirts that you could buy. I just, I wanted everybody to know no fear, no fear. So I did that and I got... You know, it had like an old AM radio, so I went to this place back in the day that's uh, kind of like a, like a Best Buy, but it wasn't Best Buy, and I had them put in the newest model Pioneer cassette deck that they possibly had, and I got Pioneer 6 by 9s and I had them in there And I was excited. I had my radio. I had my no fear stickers or sticker. I had my other random stickers. I had my incense burner. I had my trees hanging. Like I was ready, right? Heading into my junior year of high school, I was ready to step my game up. I was ready to take things to a whole nother level in terms of my image, my identity, my persona. I had spent a bunch of time, you know, this sounds weird, but growing my hair out. I had long hair, like down to here. You know, and I was going for, if anybody remembers this show, My So-Called Life, I was going for that Jared Leto, Jordan Catalano, like look, you know, parted down the center, long hair. I had my Grateful Dead tie-dye that was really popular back then. They've made their way back. Uh, I had all this image. I had my hemp rope necklaces. You know, I'm going for this. My plan was I'm going to show up and I'm going to take over this campus. Like, I know that I've not necessarily had the best luck my freshman and sophomore years with, with the ladies, but things are about to change. Like I have grown, I grew like seven inches. And you're like, yeah, and I stopped, by the way, you can tell, but I grew seven inches. I'd lifted away, I was ready to show up. So first day of school. Oh, let me back up one second. I got this car, the first week I was driving it to my job and it ran great, it ran fine. The second week I was driving to some friends, you know, showing off. And I remember I got to the end of my street, we head north and I turned left. And as I turned left, the horn starts honking. Now my hand was not on the horn, I wasn't doing this. I just turn and the horn starts honking really loud. And I think that's odd. So I drive for a while and then I remember I turned left another half mile or so later and it honked again. And it wasn't like beep, it was like beep, like the whole time till you came out of the turn. Everybody's like, you know, some people were making obscene gestures. Like, why are you honking at me? And I'm just like the 16 year old kid, you know, I was scared despite my no fear bumper sticker or window sticker. And so I'm like, I don't know. And it keeps honking every time I turn left that I don't know what the problem is, I don't know anything about cars. So I realized I only have one, one choice, one option here, one thing I can do. The only way to get home, all right turns. So I just had to figure out, how do I get home using only right turns until I pull into at least my driveway, then I can honk. So we got that taken care of, all right? That got fixed, so I was good. So I'm showing up for school the first day, I've got everything ready, all right? Gonna be big man on campus, gonna really impress people. I've spent a lot of time crafting this image, this identity, this persona that I'm really projecting through this vehicle. And so I get there on the first morning of school and I pull into a parking spot. As I'm pulling in, if you can picture this scene, as I'm pulling in, right as I'm pulling in, right in front of the parking spot, stroll three of the most beautiful senior girls in the whole school. And I'm thinking, this is ordained. This has been set to happen since the dawn of time that I would show up like this and these three girls would see me. And I had this image in my head that I'm going to get out of my car and everything's going to instantly switch to slow motion. If you've seen Daisy Confused where Matthew McConaughey is walking into the Emporium and it goes slow motion and Bob Dylan's playing, you know, I got the the hair and they're just going to look at me and just be like, whoa. This is how it's playing out. So I pull in And they're walking. If you can imagine, I pull in, and this is, you know, I don't have it up there anymore, but it's a bigger car. So imagine that as I pull in and I go to put the car into park, they're at my front left headlight, okay? And so as soon as I turn the car off, at this point, they're literally in between the two headlights, dead center. I turn the car off, and for some reason to this day that I still don't understand, the car starts to violently shake. It starts to shake. And I don't know what's going on. And it seemed like an eternity. In reality, it probably shook, no exaggeration, for a good 15 seconds. And the thing is, they didn't keep going. They stopped right in the middle. And they're turning and looking. And this car is just shaking. And I'm just sitting there like, you know. And then it finally stopped shaking. And I don't know if this has ever happened to a vehicle that you've had. Maybe you've never had a 76 Chevy Nova. But it took like a sigh, it took like a deep breath, like it was tired and it just inhaled and then it made this and as it made that sound simultaneously, tons of smoke starts pouring out from under the hood, literally right on to these senior girls. So I did what any 16-year-old boy would do. I acted like I had dropped something down in the passenger side floor well and I just went down there and kind of like stayed there, Okay. So I spent all this time, energy, attention, money to project this image, to curate this identity. And in a matter of 15 to 20 to 30 seconds, it literally and metaphorically went up in smoke. I felt like my image, the image I worked so hard to curate and cultivate was ruined Now, the reality is I never had that image or that identity in the first place. I was hoping for it. I had an identity and an image back then. It just wasn't the one that I probably thought that I had or that I hoped that I had. So here's the first truth of this morning. We're going to have a lot of these, and there's going to be some big, big, uh, deep stuff that's going to be on the screen. So if you're Somebody that takes pictures with your phone, feel free to do that. It won't bother me. There's also some, a notes section in the bulletins you may have received. But here's our first truth for this morning. Besides your image of God, so besides what you think about God, which is a whole other sermon, the most important thing in your life is what you believe about yourself, your identity, if you will. We'll use identity as that working term for this morning. Most important thing. So the question is, if someone were to ask you right now, put you on the spot and say, who are you? Who are you? What would your answer be? Who are you? How would you respond? What would you say? What things would you use to describe yourself? How would you want people to know you? If somebody's meeting you for the first time, what things would you want them to know about you that you feel create a capsule, right? Or at least some sort of succinct summary of who you are who are you? This question is the question of our age. The question of our age. And we're going to spend a significant portion of our time together this morning looking at this. This is on the screen. We're going to look at how our society constructs and manipulates identity through a set of secular philosophical assumptions. And we're going to look at how those underlying assumptions, which are deeply, deeply insidious in nature, have come to inform our individual identities, even those of us who are Jesus followers. This is not out there somewhere. This has permeated and infiltrated the church. And we're going to look at this stuff in depth. Now, let me be clear before we go there. There's no way I can cover all I want to cover in the next 30 minutes. In fact, I'll barely be scratching the surface. What I want you to do, what I encourage you to do, would be to discuss these things, If you go out to lunch after this with people here from Revision to discuss them, if you have a home group that meets throughout the week to discuss these things, to discuss something that I mentioned today, to talk with friends about them, whatever it is, if you just take this 30 minutes and think you're going to get enough and understand it deeply, it's not going to happen. So follow up some way about this kind of stuff. So as I said, who are you is the question of our age. Here's another truth. Our culture is completely obsessed with creating and curating identities, and this obsession has seeped so deeply into our modern psyches that certain phrases and concepts have been embraced as universal truths and added to the canon of our modern vernacular without a second thought. In other words, because of how our culture is, there are certain things that are said, that are repeated ad nauseum, that now we take for granted We believe they're sort of self-evident truths and it would be difficult for most people to argue against them because we don't really understand what they mean, what they're saying. So we kind of just assimilate them into ourselves and we operate from that place. Oftentimes we don't even know it. So what do I mean? Let me be specific. Think about it this way. Here's here's a phrase that has seeped so deeply into our modern psyches that we take for granted as somehow true. And it's this, you do you you do you. Or what does that actually mean? We'll talk about that here in a second. Love is love would be another equivalent one. What does that actually mean? It's hard to argue, right? Who's going to argue against love is love? It sounds so great, but what does it actually mean when you start to drill down past the surface level and you start to look at the sort of philosophical, theological underpinnings, right? The worldview that would say that sort of thing. What does it actually mean? You do you. There are a million variations on that idea that we are absolutely blasted with every single day through advertising and culture. Many times that thought is a prevailing thought that's preached from the pulpit in some way. Self-actualization, self-fulfillment. You do you. You live your best life. Our culture is obsessed with that. These things are heralded by the masses. What they turn out to be is pseudo-intellectual platitudes that sound good, but they have no real meaning. And in fact, they're deeply, deeply empty and harmful when we sort of started to operate from that place. You do you. There's not a person in here who hasn't heard that, right? Or even maybe said it just in jest to somebody. Mark Twain, brilliant, brilliant man, famously said this, the worst advice One person can give another person is just be yourself. The worst advice one person can give another person is essentially you do you. Here's an important question as we sort of unpack this idea. Stick with me because we're going to get into the weeds pretty deeply here, but then I will lead you out of it, I promise, okay? Here's an important question. Let's take you to you. How do you do you? What does you doing you look like? First of all, who is the you, who is the you that you plan to do? And how do you do you if you don't know who you are? And if you don't know who you are, if you don't know yourself, how do you find yourself? Where do you look? Where do you go to discover who you are so that you can do you and you can live into what we're told is the greatest way of life imaginable, right? Which is you doing you. How do you do that if you don't know? Where do you go? Do you go outward? Do you look out there somewhere towards consumer goods and hobbies and team sports and so-called preferences, right? Things that we like, because the reality is most of our preferences, if we really start to think about it and if we're honest, most of our preferences are culturally conditioned through what the linguistic philosopher Noam Chomsky calls manufactured consent. Has anybody ever just been wandering along in life and you feel semi-content and semi-happy with things and all of a sudden you see an advertisement or you see somebody talking about something that you didn't even know prior to that moment even existed existed? You didn't even know it was a thing. And all of a sudden, you learn that it's not only a thing, but now you learn that you cannot live without that. And your life is unfulfilled until you have that. And it may be a material good, but it also may be a mindset, a way of life. Right? That's manufactured consent. Suddenly, you've given yourself over to pursuing something that two seconds before you didn't even know you exi- existed and life was just fine. Do you look outward? How about inward? How about inward? Do we do what all the modern psychologists and self-help gurus and the sort of self-actualization specialists that have ridiculously popular podcasts, do we do what they tell us to do, which is to just search our heart, to just look deep down inside of us, to look inward and really find out who we are and what makes us tick and to live out of that place? My question would be to you, if you've done that, how's that worked out for you? Because I don't know a single person, and this includes myself, who's ever sat down, to look inward, really down deep into who they are and their years that have gone by in their life and the way they're living now. And they really look at that stuff and they emerge from that in a better place than when they went in. Usually you start to look deep and do a deep dive within yourself, you come out depressed. So where do we look, all right? Is it inward, is it outward? Is it some combination of the two? Is it some magical exact percentage, 51% outward, or 49% inward, and I need to mix these things together? What defines you? I mean, what defines you? How does someone establish and maintain an identity in an age where corporations and social media platforms are clamoring and competing and spending literally $300 billion a year, that was 2022's stat to co-opt your identity with targeted advertising and predatory algorithms? How do you navigate that? How do you navigate against such a powerful construct that that has preyed on the human brain and is intended to try to twist you up, to get you discontent so you spend more What defines you? One of my all-time favorite movies. The main character is sitting looking through an Ikea catalog, and he says, I used to flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? What kind of dining set defines me as a person? And this is a man, right? And it's satirical. So he's saying, I got to this place where I started thinking about dishes and how those dishes were somehow an outward representation of who I am. And if I didn't have the right dishes, I may be projecting the wrong image and the wrong identity. So I need to really carefully navigate through this catalog, figure out, I got to get the right dining set. What does that look like? How do we feel comfortable in our own skin when we live in an airbrushed, photoshopped world of celebrity magazines and Instagram influencers and seemingly perfect lives? In that same movie, same character is, goes onto a city bus and he notices an advertisement on, on the wall and he says, I felt sorry for guys who packed into gyms trying to look like what Calvin Klein or Tommy Hilfiger said they should look like. Because the advertisement is a Calvin Klein underwear ad and it's a man who has about 2% body fat and has no chest hair, no hair anywhere, right? And in fact, that doesn't even have his face. It's cut off right here. And he says, is that what a man is? Is that how I'm supposed to look? How do I, is this is what they're telling me. This is how I'm supposed to live. This is the place I'm supposed to operate from. Calvin Klein is defining for me what I should look like. How do we bear the weight of what the author Alan Noble calls the responsibility of self-belonging, which means that in our society in 2023, Western society, it's entirely up to us to decide who we are, And then the other part of the responsibility that we bear is to make sure that we broadcast that to the world around us. How do we bear the weight, the responsibility of self-belonging? How do we stand out? How do we stand out? Because if you haven't noticed, standing out is maybe the apex value of our culture. You know, the confessional creed of modern society is what's known as expressive individualism. We'll talk about that here in a couple minutes. Expressive individualism. Another thing on the screen that I have for you, the primary social ethic in our culture is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is viewed as dangerous and must not, ironically, be tolerated. Therefore, social justice Is actually less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. What does all that mean? It means that our society, as its highest value, values your ability to express yourself, to define yourself, and then to put that out there, to curate, to cultivate, to construct, to build up. To do all these things to establish who you are and then to be able to put that out there. And everybody should be able to do We view that as the highest freedom is this radical autonomy. This radical freedom of self-expression, expressive individualism. Advertisements are predicated on the idea that you want to stand out, that you want to be an expressive individualist. They sell you the idea that you can stand out. And they do this Because they work, right? They work because they tap into something deep within the fabric of our collective Western psyches, which is this expressive individualism. It's the air we breathe. This idea that we are individuals. We have to express ourselves, and we have to project out to people who we are. And if they don't reflect back to us what we're trying to project, then we're not safe. Then that person needs to be chastised in some way because we have a right to say who we are and how dare somebody say maybe that's not who we actually are. They think differently about us than we think about ourselves. These advertisements, this idea, right, that we can stand out, that we want to stand out, keeps us in this perpetual hamster wheel of consumption. And it's born out of discontent, not so much with what we have, but with who we are. We're always trying to build up more of who we are. We're never quite thin enough. We're never quite pretty enough. We never quite have enough money. We never quite have fell in the blank compared to so-and-so, compared to such-and-such, compared to sometimes just a really abstract standard that we can't even necessarily name, that we just feel sort of as though, again, it's just the air that we breathe. It's ambient in our society. Here's the truth. We're gonna talk about this a little bit. I don't want to lay on it for too long, but here's the truth: what causes you to stand out in a liberal society is not attempting to stand out. Now, I'm not talking about liberal in the sense of democratic politics. You can make your own you know, decisions and judgments about that. I'm talking about 16th century philosophy, John Locke liberalism, which our country is founded on, the idea that individual autonomy and expressive individualism is the greatest good a society can possibly have. Forget about healthy tribal identity and belonging within multifamily units, right, and generational heritage and identity coming from all these long passed down traditions and all this stuff. I'm talking about a society that's basically shirked all that and said, you do you. Here are the tools we'll give you, advertisement, cars, clothes, money, all these things, style of hair, all these different things. Here's how you figure out and construct an identity. Now, that's the highest value. Figure that out and do that, and that's what gives your life meaning is the pursuit of that. How's that working for us, you know? Here's a truth. It's a hard truth, but it's a truth. And I hope you don't think I'm being mean when I say this, and I'll hopefully prove that. The idea of uniqueness is a myth. The idea of uniqueness is a myth, a fully modern convention. Right? John Lennon famously and rhetorically saying, in the song Instant Karma, who on earth do you think you are? Right? So he asks this question. I said it was the question of the age. Who are you? John Lennon asked this 40-plus years ago, 50 years ago. Who on earth do you think you are? And then he answers. How many of you know the song? Anybody? Anybody know the answer? Oh, my gosh. Okay. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. Who on earth do you think you are? And he answers it in a song. He says, a superstar. Who on earth do you think you are? A superstar? Question mark. And then he says, well, right you are. Because we all shine on. So 50 years ago, John Lennon was articulating something that we see has come home to roost fully in 2023. Who on earth do you think you are? And he says, you are a superstar. If you think you're a superstar, if you think you're special, if you think you're unique, if you think you stand out, if you think you're one of a kind, if you think all these things, well, right, you are. Because we all shine on. And some of you right now are like, wait a second, what's wrong with that? And the fact that you're asking that question shows just how deeply this has been embedded into our collective thought patterns. Because here's the truth, and I hate to break it to you, and I'm not trying to be mean, because I'll turn it right back around on myself, and I'll use myself as an example, but none of you are superstars. By whatever definition that even is, none of you are superstars. 99.9999 on to infinity percent of people who have ever lived and who will ever live will live and die in relative obscurity. Do you know how few people at the end of my life will know that I was even alive? There will be a handful of people at my funeral, but right now, I tend at times like the rest of you to think that I am the center of the universe. And that everything sort of revolves around me. And I see everything through this lens of my own vision and my own perceptions and my own ideas about things. And I can tend to think that I am incredibly important until I remember how many billions and billions of billions of people have lived and died that I don't even know their names. There are people living right now and dying every day. I have no idea who they are. And I am just one small part of that. I'm not a superstar. I'm not unique in the way that our modern culture is trying to tell me. The thing is, that's freedom if you can grasp it. It's okay to say that. Most of us will live and die in relative obscurity. We'll have a job and a family, and hopefully, we'll affect some people for the gospel of Jesus. And hopefully, you know, we'll learn that we're loved by Him and live out of that love. But this clamoring, this constant striving to try to craft our identity, to figure out who we are. It has two primary results. The first first logical landing spot for the secular person who has even a little bit of emotional and intellectual integrity is nihilism. Nihilism is this. It's the rejection of all religious and moral principles and the belief that life is meaningless. Why is that a logical landing spot? Because when you tease this philosophy out to its end just discover that all we're doing is chasing something that we'll never find. It's the perpetual hamster wheel. How many more things can I buy? How how many more promotions can I get? How much more money can I put in the bank? How many more things can I do to project on social media who I want to try to hopefully get the response that I'm looking for, right? Because our identities are only identities in the light of witnesses. So we can project all we want, but if nobody reflects back to us, what does that even mean? So, When you do that and do that and do that and you don't get the result that you want, when you pull into the parking lot and the car shakes and it smokes and blows smoke all over beautiful senior girls and suddenly you were hoping to get a date, now there's no chance whatsoever. When it all goes up in smoke, when you realize that it's just a constant chasing after the wind, what do you do apart from when you don't have a relationship with God? Well, it's nihilism. It's the belief that life is meaningless and we see this all over right now. Whether people will admit it or not. In the book, The Coddling of the American Mind by the social psychologist Jonathan Heide talks about how most college campuses across the country have had to employ extra mental health counselors, kind of use that generic blanket term, psychologists, licensed social workers, extra, more than ever before. This has happened in the last several years, basically since the beginning of 2019, a little bit before, so in the last four to five years. because. Anxiety, panic attacks, depression, eating disorders—the list goes on—are now epidemic on college campuses. There's been this massive, massive rise. It's—it's it's literally hundredfold percentage re, uh, increase in these. And Jonathan Haidt, because he studies such things, has been able to trace this back. And he's realized that this generation of students who are in college are the first generation getting to this place in their life. This was the first generation that was raised with two things that no generation before them was raised with. Number one, iPhones. Number two, Instagram, social media. So the Instagram, social media, name your, social media platform and the iPhone, right? Ironically, the iPhone, kind of, you know, again, ironic, all about us, has produced this radical trouble. Why is that? Why is it? Why is it that these, these young women, especially, it's affected them disproportionately, and young men are having anxiety, panic attacks, depression, eating disorders, suicidal attempts in mass, right, compared to what it's been previously. Why is that? Here's the truth. It's because the burden of self-belonging is, in essence, a wide road to anxiety, panic attacks, and nervous breakdowns. Who are you? is an impossible question to answer from a place of isolation. So if we give to our culture's siren song, and it says this here in a second, left alone to search for identity amongst the cultural siren songs, you will ultimately find yourself dying a slow death in the wilderness of self-consciousness and existential despair. That's a fancy way of basically saying, if you continue to chase after these things and you're always trying to construct an identity and project that identity and try to figure out who you are in light of what the world has to offer, it will lead you not just to a dead end, but to a deep, dark hole. To a deep, dark hole because you're doing it on your own. And you will land in this place of nihilism, You will land in this place of anxiety. And I know this is not a pretty picture, but this is the 200 proof reality. All right. Now that I've thoroughly depressed you, okay, what do we do about all this? What's the response? Because you're like, I get it. I relate to it. I see it in myself. But what am I supposed to do about that? Let's start with the truth. Truth is this, Christians, Jesus followers, those who have given our lives to Jesus are called to think, believe, and live differently when it comes to our identity. And I'll tell you right now that so much of what's going on in our culture today will hinge on whether Christians are able to do this or not. I don't have time to really unpack that this morning, but this is an absolute center issue. It is not peripheral. It is not outside somewhere. It is dead center dead center. We're called to think, believe, and live differently when it comes to our identity. As Jesus followers, as Jesus said, our kingdom is not of this world, and it's not given to this world's definitions. Our distinctiveness is what sets us apart. If only we'd lean hard into it. Now, let me be clear. When I say our distinctiveness, you're like, wait, didn't you just contradict yourself? Didn't you just say we're not special, we're not unique? I'm not talking about our individual distinctiveness. I'm talking about our collective distinctiveness as the body of Christ as the church, as a church that's called to be holy and set apart, right? As a family, as a whole unit, one body, many parts. If we could lean into that identity, radical change can take place. One of the greatest freedoms we gain from being in Christ is that we don't have to search for our identity any longer, all of the stuff that our culture is chasing after, all the ways that it's trying to draw you in to be able to express yourself, you can leave it all behind. Because for the Jesus follower, our identity has already been established. We don't have to keep looking for it, it's already been given to us as a gift. So you can leave all that behind you. Who are you? Here's the big truth Who are you? Question I asked earlier. But simply, you are gods. You are gods, not little g like your gods, like your superstars. You are gods, possessive, plural. Your identity is based on God's perfect will, not your own subjective, uncertain will. Thank God for that, right? All your efforts to craft a perfect, marketable image add nothing to your personhood, and that should not be a cause for. Sadness, that should be cause for rejoicing, that you don't have to bear that burden anymore. The Anglican theologian Rowan Williams captures a Christian understanding of identity so well when he says this, and it's a lot, but just listen the best you can. You have an identity, not because you invented one or because you have a little core of selfhood that's unchanged, but because you have a witness of who you are. You have somebody who said to you who you are happens to be God. What you don't understand or see, the bits of yourself you can't put together or pull together in a convincing story, are all held together in a single gaze of love. You don't have to work out and finalize who you are and have been. Again, thank God, literally. You don't have to settle the absolute truth of your history or your story. And we're so, so given to trying to define everything. In the eyes of the presence that never goes away, all that you have been and are is still present and real. It is held together in a unifying gaze. And what good news that is, that our identity isn't found out there somewhere or somewhere deep within ourselves. It's grounded in the loving gaze of God who's looked at us and said who we are. He's established once and for all who we are. The author of Hebrews introduces the letter by saying, in these former times, in these past times, God spoke to us through the prophets and in many other forms. But in these times, he has, past tense, he has definitively spoken. He has spoken through Jesus. He has once and for all settled who we are. What does it mean that he has spoken through Jesus? There's a whole other sermon there, but the short version is, your identity is grounded in the identity, in the idea that you are loved by God so much that Jesus came. Jesus has spoken. You are worth it. We're told that for the joy set before him, He endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. Why? For the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? It's you. It's crazy, but it's 100 percent true. The joy set before him, He saw an eternity with you. He saw that as joyful. Now he's got some work to do on a lot of us to get us ready for that. But he's settled. We were the joy set before him. Let's get more specific about who we are. This is the last 10 minutes or so. Did you know, did you know, do you know, not in the intellectual sense, maybe you don't know there, so let me help you with that step today, but did you know in your heart Do you operate out of the place of knowing that you are a walking, talking, breathing house of the Trinitarian creator God? And that scripture tells us this over and over and over again. If you're anything like me, you may have grown up in a church that told you over and over again that you are just a sinner, that you're just a sinner. And it's important to identify yourself as a sinner because you want to stay humble You're just a sinner saved by grace. Well, there's only one problem with that, and that's that the Bible doesn't say that. It says that you were a sinner and you have been saved by grace, but present tense, so when you're in Christ, you are a walking, talking, breathing, moving house of the Trinitarian God. You've been transferred from darkness to light. You've been given a name. You are now saints. You were sinners, but now you're saints, but even deeper than that, all three parts of the Trinity the Bible tells us exist within you. And that's the place where you're supposed to live from. Genesis 1, let's go to the first one, the Father. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says this. Then God said, right, this is a creation story. You all probably know this. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then skipping down after God says that, God does that. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is what's known theologically as the Imago Dei. It's the image of God. It's that at the foundations of the world, when we were formed, you're formed in the very image of God, the image of the Trinitarian creator, God, the image of the father. You have that in you, no matter who you are, what you've done, what you're doing now, how you showed up here this morning, anything you think about yourself, no matter what that truth is, you are created in the image of God. It's important that we see ourselves that way. It's also important we see others that way, right? No matter how uh, they act, that they are still created in the image of God. They are still image bearers. They still have a God stamp on them that's irreversible, that's irrevocable. So you have the Father in your very being. You're created in his image. Let's move on to our verses finally for this morning. It's part of our this series, The Image of the Invisible, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Let's see this in a new light now. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. Skip down. Then he says this again. For you died. For you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What is Paul saying He's saying you, right, died. The you, the flesh part of you that existed, the darkness part of you that existed, that died. That part no longer exists in you. You died, that is gone. And now Christ is your life. And when Christ returns, you'll see fully who you are. He's not speaking metaphorically, metaphysically in some sort of new age sense. And he's saying, you died. No, he's saying, you died. When you became in Christ, you became a new creation. You shed all that old stuff and you took on the identity of your savior and your Lord Jesus. He says this, Paul does in a different way in another place that's more well known. In Galatians 2.20, he says, for I have been what? I have been crucified with Christ. Who's the I? Paul was still living and breathing when he wrote this, clearly. So what's he talking about? For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What is he speaking to there? He's speaking to the fact that this person that needs to chase after constructing an identity and projecting an identity and an image and curating all these things and being beholden to this culture And all these things, that person absolutely needed to do that before Christ because that person had no other way of establishing meaning. That person had no other way of getting by, no other place to look for, to figure out who they were. But now, when you're in Christ, the old you has died. You're absolutely gone. What does this mean for all of us right now? It means you're dead. It means, practically speaking, to bring this sort of full circle that you can't do you. You can't do you because you are dead. Now, you can still pull, depending on your age, you'll get this reference or not, you can still pull a weekend at Bernie's, okay? Any, anybody, nobody, okay. Weekend at Bernie's, go look it up. You can still take somebody that's dead and prop them up and walk them around like they're alive. You can still tap into, if you want, to that sort of flesh side that wants the things of the world, but you're not, you don't have to. If you wanna operate from that place, I mean, it's not a good thing, I wouldn't recommend it but you still can a little bit. But now, right, you've died. You don't have to chase that any, any longer. And next, the last one. So we have the Father. We have the Son. We sang a bit about this this morning. From Romans 8, Paul writes this. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. So he says what I just said, which is, You don't have to be given to that old man anymore, that old woman. That person's gone and dead. You can leave them behind. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even through your body, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Catch this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, so we have the Imago Day. We have I've been crucified with Christ. You died, and now your life is hidden with Christ. We have the Father, we have the Son. And now in Romans 8, Paul's saying, we have the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you. How many of you wake up every morning and think to yourself, as you roll over and turn off your alarm or do whatever you do, the first thing you think is, I have the same spirit living in me that raised Christ from the dead, and that's where I'm going to operate from today. Right? It's not a common thought, and it's not talked about enough, but it's a profoundly, profoundly deep thing that we have to get inside of us. We can read this, and we're just like, oh, cool, yeah, when I was uh, saved, I was given a deposit of the Holy Spirit as sort of you know, a reminder that I'm saved. No, that's not what Paul's talking about at all, not at all. He's not talking about that. That's great, we need that. He's talking about the Spirit that's in you to produce right? Your ability to live righteous, holy lives, to produce power, to produce things in your life, to empower you to live for Jesus. You have the Father, the Imago Dei, the Son, you've been crucified with Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit. You are walking, talking, breathing houses of the Trinitarian Creator, God. Your identity is settled, and it's in that place, it's settled. Let me go ahead and invite Jeremy and the worship team to come up as I get ready to close. The question is, you're like, great, I hear you. Our society wants us to, you know, figure out who we are. You're saying God's already settled who we are, but what does it look like for me practically? How do I I internalize that? How do I make that manifest in my life in ways that I'm not currently doing? First, let me acknowledge that the responsibility of self-belonging, as I said earlier, is absolutely the air we breathe. So no matter how much you grasp of what I'm saying this morning, you and I... We'll continue to doubt our identities. We'll continue to question who we are and who we ought to be and how we might get there. Advertisements will continue to cultivate our insecurities, right? People will continue to tell us that we need to figure out who we are. Social media platforms will continue to pressure us into anxious self-expression. There'll still be a conspiracy among the powers that be. And I mean, the principalities and the powers, as Paul names them, the dark forces of this world that are at work, there'll still be a conspiracy to construct a false narrative about who we are and how we get there. This is the oldest sin, the oldest temptation in the book, Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, prove it. Did God really say you can't do this. You'll, no, you'll be like God. When Satan tempts Eve, what is he talking to? Issues of identity. You'll be, you'll be different. The difference now, hopefully, is that you can name it and remind yourself and others that it, is, that it is a lie. Again, maybe the lie. It's gonna be a process because you'll begin to see things differently. So i ask you to be patient with yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to help you. And I'll give you two quick things, very quick, not much into like three steps or practical stuff, but I'll give you these things. I'd encourage you when you can in your prayer time to ask the Holy Spirit this question and maybe journal what you feel like he's saying, or journal, or however you want to make make note of that. Holy Spirit, what parts of my identity have I abdicated to the surrounding culture? Like in what ways have I sold my birthright for a bowl of beans? It's a Jacob and Esau thing, because in what way have I, have I sold myself short? In what way have I been living into a false narrative? In what way have I been chasing after what our culture says is an identity and trying to figure out who I am aside from Father, Son, Holy Spirit and his church? That's the first. The second part is just to simply meditate and repeat this short phrase over and over again. It's been incredibly helpful for me. And it's this, your thoughts define me. You're talking to God here. Your thoughts define me. You're inside me and you are my reality. We can't afford to have a thought in our head about ourselves that God does not have about us. We're given to mood swings and to such subjective ways of identifying who we are based on circumstances and situations and ups and downs. Thank God, literally, he's not like that. So we have to confess and pray, your thoughts define me, who you've said I am, because you're inside of me, you're my reality. All of this stuff around me, it's just the proverbial matrix. It's just a construct. It's all going to go away, but only you will remain. So I completely tether myself to what you say about me, who you say that I am, who you've created me to be, which is in you, for you. Amen. Thank you guys for your patience.